This is a podcast by K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. Find us at k103.sc. And we're back with another episode of Your Monthly Dose of Europe. My name is Caroline Vanek and I'm your host today. My name is Abigail Hartson and I will also be your host today. Welcome, Linda. Thank you. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming Linda Bayet to the studio to talk about the upcoming and former EU elections, as well as voting behavior and more. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here. So, Linda Bayet is a PhD and senior lecturer in political sciences and director of studies for CES, which is the Center for European Studies in the University of Gothenburg which administers the cross-disciplinary educational programs in European studies. She's also an associated researcher to the Center for European Research and the Swedish National Election Studies. Thank you so much for coming today. Let's dive right in. This is such a special episode, not only because EU citizens get to vote soon, June 6th to 9th, in fact, but also because we get to talk about voting, how voting works, how the last elections turned out, and most importantly, why it is so important to vote. How do the elections work? Who can vote across the EU? Well, first of all, you have to be a citizen of an EU country and eligible to vote in your own country. And if that's the case, well, then you're also eligible to vote in the European Parliament elections. And most of the voters, they do vote in their home country and they vote for the national party or the candidates that they prefer. However, it's good to know that if you reside in another EU country, uh, you can actually vote in that country instead. It's up to you. You can choose in that case. I have a question. And um, in the case that you vote from another country that is not your, your national one, uh, do you vote for the parties from your country? or from the country that you reside in? No, if you choose to vote in your in the country you reside in, then you will be voting for the parties in that country. Perfect. So you will participate as a citizen of the country where you are currently living. Would it be strategically more beneficial to vote in a larger EU member state? For example, since I'm from Germany, would it make more sense for me to vote in Germany than in Sweden? Well, it depends on how you think about it, because on the one hand, larger countries have a larger influence in the European Parliament because they have more seats. Yeah. But on the other hand, since it is a larger country, your vote is just one among, well, how many millions you are currently in, in Germany compared yeah. to uh, in a smaller country. So proportionally, your vote is actually... Um, a little bit more higher uh, weighted if you are voting in one of the smaller member states. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then after the elections, how is parliament formed? So uh, the uh, member states of the EU, they have different number of seats in the European Parliament from 96 Germany, which we just talked about, the largest country. Uh, and the smaller member states, the smallest ones, they have six seats each, such as Malta, for example. Sweden is somewhere in the middle with 21 seats. So the total number of seats will increase slightly after these elections, and it will be 720 in total after June. And uh, currently there are 705. So after the elections, each country's seats are distributed based on the voters' preferences. 
most national parties are already members of one of the so-called party groups in the European Parliament. There are party groups that represent different ideological stances. And these will most likely continue to be part of the same party group after the election. So in a way, our votes will affect how large each of these party groups will be after the election. So as I said, most of these party groups have been stable over time, although there have been some name changes and specific parties have joined or are no longer members. But in general, they are quite stable over time from left to right. Um, so we do have, for example, a large a social democratic group, a left group, a green group, a liberal group, and the large conservative Christian democratic group, the EPP, which is the largest group, and a conservative, more EU-critical group called ECR. Further to the right, there has been more changes. So almost after every single European Parliament election, we have seen new groups form further to the right of <clears throat> ECR. There are also a certain number of MEPs who are not part of any group as well. Okay, so how much influence the independent uh, MEPs have? So one single MEP in a similar sense to in a national parliament do not have so much influence on their own. They have to form alliances. And this is also the reason why there are party groups, because that's a way of making sure that you build alliances with like-minded parties who share similar ideological stances. But again, not no single one of these party groups in the parliament have majority. So they will also have to seek alliances with other party groups in order to form majorities in support for one of the uh, proposals for new legislations put forward by the commission or other decisions. Interesting. And um, could you give us some key points about the last elections? How was the voter turnout? Is there anything that was surprising to you? So the overall turnout actually increased for the first time since 1979 when we had the first European Parliament election. So it was 51% this time, which which was an increase, I think, by seven percentage point or something. Um, and um, so that's quite interesting that it was a change upwards. Sweden is slightly higher. We had 55%. Uh, and uh, in Sweden, it has increased since 2009 and onwards for in the European Parliament elections. Before that, we had also a decreasing turnout. Um, and something about the outcome then, the uh, election results led to the two largest party groups, the Social Democratic Party Group and the EPP, this conservative uh, Christian Democratic Group, that they no longer had the ability to form a majority by themselves, just those two party groups. So they now always have to seek alliances with most often the Greens and or the Liberals in order to form majorities. Uh, so that's perhaps something that was a little bit unusual in the last election. Do you think that there were some patterns that we can point out from the last elections? Well, in addition to this change that the uh, Social Democratic Group and the largest conservative group, EPP, that they were uh, reduced in size and no longer could hold majority. Uh, we also saw that there were uh, an increase in parties further to the right, Eurosceptic 
parties, uh, immigrant critical radical right parties, increased vote shares in in the last election. So that was another pattern that we could see as well. Do you think that that will contribute in the next elections into like a further radicalization of the parliament, the European Parliament? Well. After the 2019 election, we haven't really seen that these parties have had such an influence, maybe predominantly because the largest parties have searched alliances and built majorities over the center. Um, but who knows what will happen after the 2024 elections, depending on the outcome, how how many vote shares these kind of parties will have. Um it is possible that we could see a further right-wing turn in the European Parliament with more alliances being formed also with the party groups further to to the right. But it's up to the European citizens. Um, from what I understand, um, these rather right-wing parties are Eurosceptical or Eurocritical. And many of them are even in favor of their like national... Mem- or the member states leaving the EU, kind of like a Brexit, um, would that have an effect on the EU Parliament overall? If if there's only EU, or if there if there's a larger share of EU critical parties, well, they differ quite a lot in between them, and that's also one of the reasons why we have seen a lot of changes after each election. Some of them are critical towards the EU but rather in terms of policy and how much power the EU should have or which policy areas. Others are critical towards the EU as such and would like their own country to leave. Uh, Nowadays, we also see a difference among these parties. Some are more uh, positive uh, towards Russia and others are not. So it's not always that these kind of parties see eye to eye either. They, um, that's why we have sometimes after elections seen several groups further to the rights because they have found it difficult to form alliances because there are differences in, in, their, in their view. But in general, the decision of whether or not a country should be a member lies with uh, the country's parliament back home. Uh, and usually a referendum. So it's not really something that affects the working of the everyday political issues that the parliament handles, because they are not going to have any votes about whether a country should be leaving or not. So what it could potentially affect um, is perhaps if there would be a large group of uh, MEPs who choose to not participate in the decisions because they think that this is an issue where the EU should not uh, be handling it. If that group would be so large that it would affect the possibility to form a large enough majority, but that's really unlikely because in general for most issues it's enough to have a majority of those who choose to vote. That sounds very promising or at least it is a better outlook than I expected. Because speaking from my experience and uh, Germany, we do have a right-wing party that's very vocal about wanting to leave the European Union and not seeing any advantages being in the European Union. So it's um, it seems very scary. Well, of course, everything remains to be seen what what happens afterwards. But so so far, they have not been 
able to influence so much the policymaking in the European Union um, because that so far there have been enough other party groups that have been able to form alliances and vote yes or no to different uh, propositions from the Commission. Another question I have is how influential the parliament is, because we talk a lot about the commission and the council, and U.S. citizens basically only get to vote for the parliament. And so the question is, how influential is it in comparison to the commission and the council? Well, it's a really good question. What is important to remember is that in a way EU works as a two-chamber system. So the Commission has the executive function in the role of presenting proposals. And then for most of the legislations, budget issues, etc., it nowadays has to be supported by both the Council and the Parliament. So in that sense, the Parliament has really seen increased powers over time. With each new treaty change, the parliament has become more powerful. Uh, when it comes to council and our influence there, it's important to remember that whenever we vote in the national elections and we are part in influencing the outcome of the government formation in our home countries, that means that we are also indirectly voting for the council because it is the ministers from our governments that travel to the council meetings and finally make the decisions uh, in, in the council together with the other ministers from the other EU member states. So we do actually vote, although indirectly, also to influence the council. There is also tendencies, or not tendencies, but I've also heard before that um, EU citizens, they're kind of in a democratic deficit um, or there's discuss discussions about the democratic deficit that it doesn't feel like the European Union is super democratic since people only get to vote for the parliament and have no influence over the commission, for example. What would you say about that? Right. So um, the discussion about a Uh, democratic deficit in the EU is really interesting and it was much more vividly debated in uh, political science and European studies literature, let's say some uh, 15 to 20 years ago before the latest treaty change, because now after the Lisbon Treaty, since the parliament has had such increased uh, powers in comparison to before, um, this discussion has sort of decreased a little bit. But of course, it, it is a difference. Um, on the other hand, in many countries, you do not elect the full government. In the national elections, you vote for parties who form the parliament, and that is that decides the outcome of what sort of government can be formed. But in Sweden, for example, you wouldn't vote for all the individual ministers. You just have influence over um, the political ideology uh, distribution in the parliament. So, yes, there there are different definitely issues about. Um, the influence of, of citizens and uh, how democratic it is. Uh, and not least also when it comes to in practice in the legislative proposal, that's something that we have seen today is that there is more of a tendency of uh, the European Parliament and the Council having negotiations uh, to speed up the decision-making procedure, what is referred to as trilogues. And I would say that that is probably where more interest lie right now in the discussion of how democratic the EU decision-making is um, as 
we now have less of a problem uh, to contrast the parliament's influence compared to uh, the council's influence. I just wanted to to ask you like a question relating to voting behavior that we talked previously. And that is if you think that younger people are more interested in voting now than they were 10 years ago perhaps or 20 years ago. What do you think about that topic? Well, um I don't know for all of Europe, unfortunately. I haven't uh, seen uh, the statistics, but in uh, in Sweden it has been an increase up until the last election where it a little bit surprisingly was a decrease among the youngest generations. So the ones under 30 voted slightly less in the 2019 election for some reason where it was increased in the other age groups. So I don't know what that's about, but hopefully you guys will change the trend now having a new group of young people coming in who hopefully will be more actively participating. Yeah, absolutely. We'll put some information about how to vote, when to vote and where to vote in the show notes so you'll know where to go. So more specifically, uh, Linda, why do you think people vote the way they vote? So we know some uh, things that are very typical for European Parliament elections. And that's not only for Sweden, that's for all the member states. And it is that the turnout tends to be lower in European Parliament elections compared to national elections. And the largest um, parties, the ones who are in government, tend to perform worse in European Parliament elections. And then small and or challenger parties can perform better. And this is a pattern we, we see All, we tend to see it in several elections over most of the countries. And there are actually two competing strands of research trying to explain this. One is um, the uh, so-called second-order election theory that basically considers every single type of election that is not about forming your national government as a, an election of a second order. And then the assumption is that because... There is no government formation at stake. Everyone, voters, parties, media should be less interested. And that's why we should see these kind of uh, expected patterns. Um, and the out when it comes to turnout is one thing. But for the party differences, it is because then the expectation is that everything is just about national politics anyway. The people don't really care about the difference uh, they they vote for national um, for the national parties and the parties compete on national issues and uh, they might be protesting if they are unhappy with the national politics or they might vote very sincerely for the genuinely most preferred uh, party when they don't have to think strategically about government formation so that's that's one explanation and the other explanation that has become um, much more common in, let's say, the last 10, 15 years, we can group it as Europe matters. And in a sense, you can find other kind of explanation as to why we see this sort of pattern, especially the pattern where parties perform differently. And uh, so, for example, we know that EU attitudes can matter. So um, Sometimes people who are have strongly 
uh, attitudes against the EU or want to show that they are very much in favor of the EU, they can choose a party that supports that kind of view. And then they are voting for something that has to do with Europe, not the national politics, uh, although it's not an issue for the parliament to decide. We also know that some voters say that they vote specifically for a candidate because they like a specific candidate and think this is a person who will do a good job in uh, in the parliament. So again, that's not about national politics. And uh, thirdly, we also see that some people actually mention things that the parliament is responsible for, like environmental issues or uh, other on other themes that are on the agenda for European politics. So for among the citizens, we see all of these kind of reasons. So it's quite broad and it's very interesting to analyze how it varies. Yeah, I have a follow-up question. Uh, do you know if there's any pattern between uh, the the participation in the European elections and how close the national elections of a particular country uh, was? Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. Yeah. So in the uh, in the second order election theory, it is expected to be a circular pattern if you consider uh, the national elections as um, uh, as a circle, and then the further away you are when you are sort of mid term in relation to a national parliament, that's when you expect to see um, the turnout to be the lowest. That's the expected pattern. Um, But if you consider these other kind of explanations, then you wouldn't really uh, see that that would affect so much. Then you have other issues that might affect turnout more or less. We often talk about an axis, like there is the north and south of Europe and the east and west. Are there also patterns uh, in voting regarding these like different areas of Europe? Well, when it comes to turnout, we uh, we can see a little bit of that kind of pattern. The turnout tends to be slightly lower in the newer member states um, and even very much lower in some of the member states. I think Slovakia um, had just over 20 percent uh, turnout. So in that so in that sense, we can see um, that there is this kind of geographical differences uh, across Europe. Um, but on the other hand, you what distorts those kind of patterns is that if you look at Belgium and Luxembourg right in the middle, they have really high turnout, uh, almost 90 percent. Uh, but it's not so surprising because they also have mandatory voting. Ah, I didn't know that. No, me neither. Yeah. Well, they do in Greece and Cyprus as well, but it's not enforced in the same way. So it's not as high turnout in those countries. Before we dive into the last part of the episode, um, we generally wanted to ask why it is even important to vote on an EU level. Why not only vote on a national level? Well, as the EU has a lot of influence on national politics, it means that we as citizens have the right to affect the future of Europe, the future of what policy and politics will be like in our different societies in voting both nationally and in the European Parliament 
election. And especially right now, when we have a situation with so many things happening at the same time, we have wars in uh, Ukraine, we have uh, future enlargements, we have environmental and climate issues, digitalization. There are just so many different aspects of what kind of future we would like, what sort of Europe we would like in the future that I think everyone, regardless of what your political ideology is and regardless of what you think about the EU, that as long as your country is a member, vote, participate. So this has been a very interesting conversation, Linda. Our last question to you would be, uh, what are your general thoughts about what's going to happen in the next elections? very difficult to uh, to to guess for about the future what's going to happen but as i said there are some prognoses that point to the fact that we might see a further increase of uh, radical right parties and eurocritical parties uh, joining but on the other hand there is also some counter movements towards that i mean in germany we have also seen people protesting against these kind of um, political ideology so perhaps it is an increase of political awareness and a willingness for people, regardless of what sort of views you have, that you want to participate and be part of democracy. Um, And if that's the case, I think we will have a really exciting election night to look forward to and see what the outcome might be. Um, I think it's time to come to an end. What do you think, Abby? Yeah, I think so as well. Yeah, thank you so much for being here on your monthly Dose of Europe. It's been a pleasure and uh, I'm sure we all know more about the parliament, the elections and why it is important to vote. Yes, thank you very much for coming, Linda. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you for listening. Feel free to give us a review or feedback and stay tuned for the next episode of your monthly Dose of Europe. This is a podcast by Brennpunkt Europa and K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. Check out our previous episodes if you're interested in learning more about the European Union. You can find Brennpunkt Europa at brennpunkteuropa.squarespace.com. You've just heard a podcast by K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. You'll find all our shows at k103.se. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Stay tuned.